But what does Jesus represent to you? Are you maybe in a way like Herod? Does he represent a threat to your way of life? Perhaps you are in school, and it is a struggle. The program is difficult. Your classmates do well, but you just cannot help yourself. You take whatever you need to do to just get a little further ahead. But then it's Christmas, and we sing the carols, and we go to the Christmas parties, and we have the celebrations, and a baby is born in a manger in Bethlehem, and that baby threatens that way of life. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Good evening, everyone. My name is Kelly Lynn, and I'm one of the leaders here at Praxis. And I'm so glad that you guys decided on a Friday night to come out here and join us and commune with us and listen to some beautiful music. Thank you, Jordan. And I know Austin has a great sermon ready for us later tonight as well. I was asked to share my testimony last week, and Phil asked me to do a mini-series on my life, so now you guys get to hear more of my testimony for the next two weeks as well. Um, So last week, I talked a little bit about just how I have found my identity in Christ, that my career or that whatever life goals I had in this world were not at all what I found my identity in, and truly it was what God saw me as his daughter and And how he viewed me made me realize that I am so much more than just my job, so much more than just a career, so much more than just what school defined me as. So today I wanted to kind of go back into the history of why I'm Adventist. Um, I wanted to just share a little bit about some vulnerable parts about my walk with God. And I hope that this is a story that maybe you can relate with or maybe you can share with a friend. I truly believe that testimonies speak loud volumes because it shows how God works in our lives, how the Holy Spirit moves in ways that we don't see unless we share it with our friends and family. So thank you for being here and thanks for listening to me be a little vulnerable. So growing up, I, I was born into a very conservative fundamentalist SDA family. My grandfather was a pastor, and he was in jail for 20 years in China as the communist revolution had taken over, and he was taken away from his family, worked in a, uh, I would say like, like a camp of some sort. I wouldn't go as far to say like an internment camp, but he worked at kind of like a camp where traders of the government would go to. And my father and his family went through a lot of persecution. My grandmother would be dragged out onto the streets, beaten. My dad and his family, because they were Christian, they were, at night they would be sleeping and there would be red guards who would come and just burn all of their belongings. And anything that was representative of Western civilization was burned. And so growing up, I would hear these stories and that made me 
really want to stay Adventist. I was like, I couldn't let that go. That's a huge part of my identity. And so growing up, I had a lot of my parents' faith and a lot of my family's faith that guided me into Adventism. But it wasn't until college that I really realized that my faith was built entirely upon someone else. I didn't question why I worshipped on the Sabbath day. I never questioned why I ate unclean or didn't eat unclean meat. I never questioned why I believed that Jesus Christ was my savior. Those weren't things that I really wanted to question because they were just merely given to me. And I look back on it and it is a huge gift to have to grow up in that. And at the same time, it is very detrimental because I never questioned that. So when I went to college, I was very free. And I was like, wow, this is nice to be free. You know, I didn't have to like come home at a certain time. And I got into alcohol and drinking and partying and I went kind of crazy. Like there were times when I'd be holding like shots in my hand. I'd be like, hey, like, can you tell me later like to not drink too much because I have to go to church tomorrow. You know, it would be like this like reverse psychology and people would look at me in my miniskirt and be like, you're going to church tomorrow? Like, who are you? And I knew I didn't look the part because at some point I really wanted and I yearned to be close to God. And yet I wanted to taste the freedom of what it was like to go outside beyond the church. It made me feel ashamed because I wanted to be good. And yet when I went to church, I didn't feel good. I didn't feel worthy enough to be a Jesus follower. People would come to me and tell me, you of all people would go to church. And it made me feel ashamed. I told myself that I had to wait until I was changed again, wait until I was ready to go to church, wait until, and all those things I realized were all lies because ultimately God meets us where we are. And so I realized at one point that I would, I would wake up like super hungover and I would feel sick to my stomach. And I would think to myself, how is this freeing? When I'm living a life that is without God, it feels so empty, so purposeless. And it was so ignorant to think that God couldn't just meet me where I was. So I questioned, I wrestled, I asked God, who are you really? And I really wanted to, to understand why I went to church, why I believed in God. And so I, I took a very deep dive into scripture. I spoke to my mentors, my pastors, and it made me realize that church isn't for perfect, pure people. Far from that. If anything, it's for the imperfect. It's for the broken. The church is a hospital for complex, broken people like you and me. Christianity doesn't mean that I'm religious, that I follow strict rules of what I do or I don't. What I've realized ultimately is that the freedom that God gives us is his love, that now I have the freedom to do what I want and I choose to do the things that God guides me to because he loves us. Because he loves me, I worship on the Sabbath. Because he loves me, I choose to treat my body as a holy temple. To know that God lived a perfect, pure, and flawless life to die an unfair death for me, it just made me realize that there was so much more to life than just partying, than just 
realizing that I didn't feel worthy. There's so much more to that. And through it all, I realized too that I that I am where I am today because of my history. I'm not ashamed of the fact that I used to do these things. I'm not ashamed of the fact that my family went through so much persecution. It really did guide me to where I am today. And I thank God for giving me a million chances because if without that, I don't think I'd be where I am today. And it's so cool to look back and see that my pastors, my mentors, it took a village to bring me to where I am today, to come to all these realizations. And when I finally did, it just opened the door of opportunities for me. Friday nights, I would never be in a church. Friday nights, I would never be at Vespers. And through time and a lot of progress and a lot of processing, I am now working for the church. I am now able to fill other people's lives and to encourage them. And it is so cool to see where God can guide us because if you just, if I just, I just opened a small, tiny door, tiny window in my heart to accept God into my life. And it brought me into swinging the doors open for opportunity. So my question for you is tonight, where does your freedom lie? Where does your faith lie? Is it something that you've always built upon your parents? Or is it something that you've always challenged, that you've questioned, that you've struggled with? That is my encouragement tonight. Thank you for listening. Every once in a while, I'll get myself into a situation where I don't expect the reaction that comes. I don't know if you've ever been there or that's ever happened to you, but you do something, you say something, and the person in front of you does not do what you expect. A number of years ago, when I was a freshman in college, I took a speech class. And as part of the speech class, there were a variety of different speeches required that we had to prepare and get up there and speak for a couple minutes. And one of the speeches that was required for this class was the impromptu speech. So basically, the instructions were you'd show up to class that day, everyone would sit where they normally sat, and the professor passed around a hat, basically. And in the hat were a number of different, like, small pieces of paper on which she had written a bunch of different things. And we each had to draw three of those pieces of paper out, read all of them, and then decide which impromptu thing we wanted to talk about. Then we had three minutes to prepare and get up there and speak for, it was like a minute or a minute and a half or something, not very long. But that was the assignment. So I got there to class, and I sat near the back, so everyone went, and everyone picked their topics out of the hat. They spoke for a minute or so. And as the class went on, the hat came around, and eventually it came to me. So naturally, I looked down, picked out a few pieces of paper, and I looked at the three of them, and I don't remember what two of the pieces of paper said, but the one I chose said something to the effect of, describe why the platypus is your favorite animal. And I thought, okay, I can talk about that for like a minute and a half. So I went on stage after the three minutes I had to prepare, went up there, stood, and I said, 
honestly, I don't remember, but something to the effect of, you know, some people like cats and other people like dogs, but my favorite animal is the platypus. And I expected the reaction to be much like this, just kind of sitting there listening. But what I didn't expect is what happened next. You see, the entire class just burst out laughing. And not kind of like a chuckle, like kind of roll through the crowd. I mean, everyone just lost it. And I immediately became very nervous because I was like trying to think, did I just say something um, I wasn't supposed to say? Or like, am I not wearing pants or something? I, I had no idea why they reacted that way. Well, I made it through the rest of the, you know, 60 or 90 seconds or whatever it was and sat back down. And to this day, I have no dreaming idea why they reacted that way. It was, of all the things I expected, that was not it. Have you ever had a similar experience? You say something, you do something, and the people or the person in front of you react in a very different way than from what you expected. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes we don't know why, or we certainly don't know when it's going to happen, but sometimes it happens that way. Well, today we're going to look at some people, some people in the Bible who react in a few different ways. Some ways you might expect and some ways you may not expect. But they're going to react in a few different ways, and perhaps we can learn a thing or two from some of these people about how to react and what to say and what to do in certain situations. The story we're going to look at specifically is the birth of Jesus. See, today we are here. We are here in our Christmas series. This is part two of four. Last week, I was up here and I talked about the shepherds, the shepherds in Bethlehem and how they were the least of these, the ones who you would least expect to be there at the birth. They were unimportant. They didn't matter, but they were there. So last week, we looked at the shepherds. Well, today, we're going to look at a different group, a group that is commonly and perhaps inaccurately referred to as the wise men or more accurately referred to as the magi we're going to take a look at what they do and how they react and how that might give us a clue about maybe how we ought to react to the Christmas season and the birth of Jesus and the time we are living in today. So to do that, what we are going to do is we're going to open to the second chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And you're welcome to turn with me there if you would like. So that's where we are. And of course, at this point, when we encounter the Magi here in the Gospel of Matthew, the birth and the early, very early years of Jesus have actually already happened. So Mary and Joseph have been married. They've gone to Bethlehem. Jesus has been born. And all of that has happened. The Messiah is here. But this is where we are going to pick up the story. We pick it up, like I said, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to begin here in verse 1. Here's what the text says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. So here we encounter a few different players. A few different people or groups of people are involved in this story. And they all react in different ways. It's not just the Magi. We have Herod and we have one other group, the teachers of the law, the priests. And we'll get to the Magi and the teachers of the law in a minute. But first, front and center, we have Herod. Or as he is often referred to, historically speaking, Herod the Great. Now, I've done a little bit of reading on the text and on Herod the Great, and there are a couple of things that make this interesting. Now, in the interest of giving credit where credit is due, a good chunk of this research came from the Scottish scholar William Barclay, a man who has done tremendous research and written a great many things that have been helpful to many, including me, here today. So like I said, we begin with Herod, or Herod the Great. Now, Herod is an interesting guy. When we read the Bible and the stories we find therein, Herod is often portrayed in a very, very negative light. And the truth is, that is generally for good reason. Herod did, did some pretty terrible things. We read about that later, in fact, in this book of Matthew. That's Herod, not a good guy. But I want to pause there for a second. Because if you were to go read some extra biblical sources, some other historical documents, some things we don't find in the Bible— we would actually find that Herod perhaps earned his name Herod the Great. Because despite all of the bad things we read about in the Bible, there were also some good things, in fact, some great things about Herod. He perhaps earned the nickname Herod the Great. First, Herod was not 100% Jewish. He was also Edomian, so the Romans trusted him. They named him governor of Palestine, and then later on also named him king. And so they liked him, the Romans liked him. He kept peace in the land, whether it was with an iron fist or not. There was peace. There wasn't infighting, so the Romans liked him. Second, Herod was known for how incredibly good of a builder he was. He built incredible things throughout the land of Israel. He's credited with building the temple in Jerusalem. And there are things that Herod built that still stand to this day. So Herod was a great builder. A few years ago, my family and I had the opportunity with a tour group to visit the Holy Land. And one of the stops in the Holy Land was Masada. And I remember that day. I actually remember that day pretty clearly. And Masada is, it's difficult to describe because it is really an incredible feat. In fact, if you go on Google and go on Google Images and just take a look at it, you'll see what I mean. But I'll do my best to describe it here. Masada is a structure that is built on the very top of a plateau. It is way up there, and even with modern technology and modern tools and the things we have to build structures today, Masada would be incredibly difficult to build today. Yet, Herod and the people he had with him built it thousands of years ago. So it sits on top of a plateau. Masada, in fact, stood there, and it was widely considered to be impregnable. It took the Romans, after a whole year of siege on Masada, 15,000 soldiers, 
to defeat only 960 Jews. So it was very, very hard to get into. It was quite the feat. And like I said, it still stands today. But despite that, what's probably most impressive about Masada is not where it was, but what he, Herod, had built into it. You see, when you go and you take a tour through there, you find two palaces with incredible luxury, running water, uh, working saunas that had heat that came up through the floor and into the walls. It, it was incredible, even by modern standards. But that's the type of builder Herod was. But not only was he a builder, he was also incredibly generous at times. The Jews often were very poor, and so Herod would cancel taxes from time to time. And then he would use his own personal fortune, his own gold, to buy corn for the starving people during famine. Herod, in many ways, earned the title Herod the Great. Now, despite all of those things, Herod had one fatal flaw, one thing really that did him in. And that was that Herod was incredibly suspicious and paranoid. He was so suspicious and paranoid that modern scholars and theologians have looked back at some of the behavior that he engaged in and have thought that there is a chance, although it obviously can't be confirmed, that Herod may have been a paranoid schizophrenic because he did some things that were truly outlandish. You see, Herod was incredibly afraid of losing his throne. He had a grip on power that he did not want to let go. And so what did he do? Because of that fear, he killed one of his wives, three of his sons, countless others of his family members, many people who surrounded him. And it's said that when he, Herod, realized he was nearing the end of his life, he ordered many of the important people there in Jerusalem imprisoned on false charges and then ordered their deaths as soon as he died so that people would mourn upon his death. That was Herod, Herod the Great. There were some great things about him, but there were some also really, really awful things about him. So then when the Magi come, they visit Jerusalem because they are looking for Jesus. How does Herod react? Well, not well. He sees Jesus as a threat. He sees Jesus as a threat to his way of life and his power, and he is not happy. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you've come to this Christmas season. It is December once again. We're surrounded by family, by friends, and festivities, and happiness, and joy, and celebration. But what does Jesus represent to you? Are you maybe in a way like Herod? Does he represent a threat to your way of life? Does he represent a threat to the way you conduct your business and the way you live your life? Maybe he's that way. He's just a baby. And so it doesn't seem like he can be much of a threat. But maybe you're doing something a little unethical at work. You're manipulating the numbers. You're afraid you might get caught. And if you do, everything could go up in flames. And then Christmas. Christmas rolls around, we sing the hymns, the Christmas carols, we read the text, we say the prayers, and then there is a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem who threatens that. Or maybe it's something different for you. Perhaps you are in school, and it is a struggle. The program is difficult, your classmates do well, but you just cannot help yourself. 
you take whatever you need to do to just get a little further ahead. But then it's Christmas, and we sing the carols, and we go to the Christmas parties, and we have the celebrations, and a baby is born in a manger in Bethlehem, and that baby threatens that way of life. You see, this is how Herod reacted. Jesus can be a threat to us in many ways. He can be a threat if we've chosen to be unethical or unkind or dishonest. And we can react as Herod did, with fear, and try to hold on to that power that we have. But if you worship Jesus as king, you're going to have to treat him like he really is your king. So that's the first response we have here in the text, the response of Herod. His response is a response of fear, hostility, and hatred. He orders the death, in fact, of all the baby boys under two years old in the Bethlehem area. He's afraid of what Jesus will do to his kingdom and to his power and to his life. And Herod doesn't like it. So he does everything he can to eliminate that threat, a reaction of hatred. So that's Herod. But then we encounter a second group. A second group of players here, and this is probably the ones we think about the least. These are the priests and the teachers of the law, and they're mentioned there in the text, but they're not mentioned very much. It kind of glosses over them, if you will, and it's hard, hard to see what's going on there, but they're there. So what happens with them? Well, of course, they're called upon when Herod wants to know where Jesus is born. So what do they do? Well, they go to Scripture. They go, in fact, to the book of Micah, and they tell Herod exactly what's supposed to happen and exactly where Jesus is supposed to be. And although their reaction is not very noteworthy, it's the lack of noteworthiness, perhaps, that is the most dangerous thing about their reaction. You see, they are indifferent. They read the text, they know what it says, they interpret it correctly, and then they just go on with their lives. It doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter to the chief priests. It doesn't matter to the teachers of the law. They answer the question. They move on. They're indifferent. That's who they are. Reminds me of a story. Reminds me of a story that wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys, Michael Irvin, once told. And he was around back in the 90s when the Cowboys were a very, very good team. Well, Irvin had been drafted before they became a really good team when the Cowboys were awful. They lost a bunch of games. They were not good. And as Irvin tells the story, he would come back to the locker room after games and just be so, so frustrated. He said he had teammates, teammates at that point in time who would come up, you know, pat him on the shoulder on the back and say, you know, it's all right, Michael, just pick up the check on Monday. Life goes on. There's always next week. Well, as time went on, the Cowboys got sold. They were bought by Jerry Jones. They hired a new coach by the name of Jimmy Johnson. And Irvin knew Johnson because when Irvin was in college, they had won a national championship together at the University of Miami. And so Johnson had been hired there. He was in town, and he spoke to Irvin. And he wanted to know who were the players they wanted to keep around and who were the players they needed to get rid of. And you know what Irvin did? He pulled out a list. He pulled out a list of all those players who had told him not to worry about it and to be like, oh, it's all right. Pick up the check on Monday. And he said, these guys have got to go. And so there were a lot of changes made, good drafts, good trades, and the Cowboys won, and they won a lot because they cared and they worked hard, and they won. You see, 
We can be hot or cold. You can love or you can hate. You can accept or you can reject. But perhaps the most dangerous thing you can do is just not to care. And this is what we see here from the priests and the teachers of the law. They just don't care. But the truth is, this is also probably the most natural way for us to react, right? We come to church, we sing the songs, we read the text, we listen to the sermon, we put a couple dollars in the plate, we hear about Christmas, Jesus is king, we finish, we look at each other and say, well, what's for lunch? And we move on. Indifference, perhaps, here is the most dangerous reaction. And that's the second group. The priests, the teachers of the law, they just don't care. So first we've got Herod, a reaction of hatred. And then we have the priests and the teachers of the law, a reaction of indifference, of apathy. But then we have a third group. And there's one final group who's going to play a part here. And this group is different from the previous two. They are the Magi, and they have an entirely different reaction to the news. They know the king is going to be born in Bethlehem, but let's continue in the text and see what happens next. We return to Matthew chapter 2. This time, we read from verse 9. Matthew writes, After they had heard the king, talking about Herod, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, the Magi are an interesting character, or an interesting set of characters, I guess I should say. But before we get into their specific reaction, let's talk briefly about who they are. The truth is we don't know a ton about the Magi. We just know they are from the East. That is all the text says. And based on the way it's structured, it's likely that they were from so far East that the people there in Israel and in Bethlehem were not very familiar with who they were. They could have been as far east as India or China because they arrive when Jesus is probably around two years old. And we know this because Herod orders all the children, all the babies under the age of two to be massacred. And so if we think about that, the star rose in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And then they show up, the Magi that is, when he's around two years old. So think about the distance and the length of time it would have taken them to get from wherever they were from all the way to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem. It took them a long time. And these people were also incredibly rich. They would have had a lot of money. The entourage that they would have brought with them would have been very large. So Herod would have known they were coming. He would have heard news about them long before they actually arrived. But there they are, they come to Bethlehem. Another thing that's important to note about them is that these magi are not Jews. They're not people who worship the same God. They're probably astrologers. They're probably people who are pagan. And I think that's important to note because it shows that God can speak to anybody. The ones to whom we expect him to speak to, the priests, the teachers of the law, just don't care. And the ones to whom we would not expect God to speak to seem to care very much. 
care enough to take a two-year journey to the other side of the known world and go worship someone whom they have only read about or heard about. But that's what they do. So those are the Magi. They get there, they get to Bethlehem, and their reaction is not one of hatred, it's not one of apathy, it is one of reverence and love and adoration. In fact, they bring gifts. They bring three gifts to be exact. First, we have gold. They bring gold. Gold, obviously, is a precious metal. It has tremendous value. It would have been very helpful for a new family with Mary and Joseph, a couple of people with a new baby who probably didn't have a lot of money. Gold would have been incredibly helpful to them. Also, it is a gift fit for a king, an appropriate gift. They came from far away. They were very rich, and they knew what to bring. They brought gold because that was important. They were giving a gift to a king. Second, they bring frankincense. This is another gift that is very rich, but it's a little different than gold. You see, frankincense was a type of incense. It would have been burned in the temple at appropriate ceremonies. It would have smelled very good. But frankincense wasn't so much a gift for a king as it was a gift for a priest. But again, an appropriate gift for Jesus. And so they bring that. But then there is a third and final gift. They bring myrrh. And myrrh is probably the strangest of these three gifts. You see, it's very different from both gold and frankincense. It was an embalming fluid. It would have been used when somebody had died. And what a gift to give to a child. And no doubt there would have been some confusion. At that time, Jesus probably could just barely walk and he probably couldn't talk that much. And death certainly wasn't on the minds for Mary and Joseph for this child. But this is the gift they give anyway. So strange, yet ultimately so appropriate. So Jesus is given gold as a king, frankincense as a priest, and myrrh as one who is to die. But this is the third reaction, the reaction of the Magi who come and give him what we assume is the best they had to offer. They didn't just stop at the gift shop in Jerusalem at Herod's castle and buy the last thing they could find. They brought the best. And they brought the best because they knew to whom they were giving the gifts. Well, I guess that leaves us with a question. Are we willing to go to those extreme lengths because he's our king, because he's our priest, because he's the one who dies for us? He's our sacrifice. And we have, I suppose, a way we can choose to react to Jesus. We have some great examples of ways people reacted to him in the text. We have the example of Herod, who reacts with hatred. A man who wants to kill Jesus because he sees Jesus as a tremendous threat to his power and his way of life. And then we have the priests and the teachers of the law. And they read the right text, and they interpret it correctly, and they know what's happening and where it's going to happen. But they, as best as we can tell, just don't care. But then we have the Magi, these people who have come from a long, long way away. They don't know exactly what they're getting themselves into. The journey will doubtless take a tremendous toll, but they come anyway, and they come bringing the best, the absolute best they could have offered to a king, to a priest, and to one who is to die. So this Christmas season... 
as we go out and we have the celebrations, the, we have the Christmas parties, we sing the carols, we spend time with our friends and with our families, I suppose it's up to us how we're going to react. And I can't tell you. I can't tell you how you ought to react or how you will react, but we've got some good examples. So as you go out this Christmas season and you have a good time, I would encourage you to think about the Magi and think about the child who is coming because we'll have a choice about what we're going to do. And so for each and every one of you, what's it going to be? Will it be hatred or indifference? Or will you kneel by the manger and worship and bring the best you have to offer? Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.